Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I am here with Donna Sandstrom uh, from the Whale Trail. How are you doing today, Donna? I'm great. Thanks, Erica. Awesome. Um, So I'm super excited to have you here. You've been requested by a couple of our listeners, as well as Kendra, our social media manager. Um, Can you tell us about yourself? How did you get into whales? Where are you from? We want to hear all about you. Sure. Thank you. Thanks a lot for um, asking me to join this. I'm really impressed by what you have all gotten done. And of course, your passion for the southern resident orcas is the thing that's going to make the difference for them. So I'm really happy to be here and bring, um, you know, what perspective and um, experience I can share. I, I'm really excited to talk to you, especially because you're, caught, you're in Monterey Bay. I went to school at UC Santa Cruz. I grew up in Southern California and I went to school at UC Santa Cruz. So that part of the world is near and dear to my heart, always will be. Um, And I actually was not, I was interested in whales and dolphins like everybody is growing up along the coast in California. Um, But I didn't study them when I was at school, even though UC Santa Cruz is a huge center of um, marine mammal 
biology and um, you know even orca, especially orcas even. Um, but when I moved, I moved to Seattle back in the early '80s, and I started dreaming about orcas, and they caught my attention that way, and I basically just started learning about them. And the more I learned, the more interesting they became. And in hindsight, I think it was a process of falling in love. They just um, awoke in me a, a curiosity and a, and a passion to know more about them. And so I started traveling up to Johnstone Strait to see the whales back in the mid eighties. And then, um, and of course the Samoan Islands. And then um, my, interest took a turn to, um, I want to say activism, but it was more like public involvement. My interest became public. In 1993, I, I, I'd gone to a whale and dolphin conference in Hawaii, and I got, uh, I knew Paul Spong, who is the director of Orca Lab, and he and uh, Helena had proposed a project to return Corky, a northern resident orca who is, uh, northern resident orca who is at SeaWorld San Diego, to return her to her pod. And I became really interested in that. And so I hosted Paul here for a talk back in 1993. That was my first public event. At the same time, I, my interest in orcas was developing. I found a new career in uh, software at Adobe Systems. So um, through the 90s, I was doing public events about orcas, including a symposium to reunite Lolita, the southern resident orca with her pod. Um, and really everything came together back in 2002 when I was a citizen organizer on the effort to return an orphaned orca Springer to her pod, which was successful. And this year we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of her going home. I feel like I'm going on too long. <laughs> No, not at all. We love all the details. That's amazing. Okay. So I had the happy and life-changing experience of being part of this pro uh, project to reunite, uh, to rescue and reunite a northern resident orca who'd been stranded here near Seattle where I live. Um, we persuaded NOAA Fisheries that she should have a chance to go home and rejoin her pod and not be sent to an aquarium. And they made this uh, historical decision, no, no fisheries, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and Vancouver Aquarium decided to attempt the first ever in situ rehabilitation of an orca. And um, to make a wonderful story short, it worked. Springer turned out to be healthy. She was carried home on a catamaran almost 20 years ago, exactly from the, the date of, that we're recording this. Um, and she was, um, welcomed her pot, her mother, although her mother had died, her grandmother and aunts were still alive and they came to get her the less than 24 hours after she was returned. Her pod came back into the area. Oh my gosh. Kind of picked her up. Yeah. And that was a moment that really was life-changing because, you know, two countries, hundreds of organizations and people had worked nonstop, put their put all, all our lives on hold for about six months to effect this rescue. And, you know, this had never been done before. So it was high risk and high stress every step of the way. But Springer turned out to be a real, um, very resilient. And she rolled with all the stresses of the project. And But none of us in our wildest dreams would have guessed her pod would have come that, back that quickly. So anyway, um, 
and I'm, I'm happy to tell you that it was that it's it's an ongoing success. Over the years, she reunited, fully integrated with her her pod and her uh, great aunt's pod. She had now she has two calves of her own. And oh my goodness! When she was last seen in October 2021, she was pregnant with a third. So it's an unqualified conservation. So it's the only successful orca reunion in history, and it happened right here. And oh um, yeah, and it changed my life because it showed me what's possible when people work together for a whale, how nature responded, how the whales, how Springer responded and how the whales responded was nothing we would have, it, it, it can only awe, awe you. You know, we were all in awe at having played any part of it. So um, Springer went home in 2002 and then but it was an entirely different story for the Southern residents. You know, they started dying younger and sooner than they should beginning in the late 1990s. They had yeah. recovered. They recovered from the captures. Um, and then they, they um, started dying from threats that are all human caused. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I wanted to do something for the Southern resident orcas. I had a seat at this table now and I, that's how I, I really focused on the whale trail. Uh, it, it, this is a crowded ecosystem of orca NGOs, but no one yeah. had done this yet. Mm -hmm. There was a gap. No one had done this, which was identify places you can watch orcas or other animals, other whales from shore. And really my core goal, and one of the reasons I'm so excited to talk to you today based on where you are, is that I wanted to build awareness of the Southern resident orcas throughout their range. When people think of the Southern resident orcas, they mostly think of them as living in the San Juan Islands, like they have a cabin there and no one really knows where they go the rest of the time. Mm. And of course, as you know, the Southern residents go as far south as Monterey Bay yes. and as far north often as uh, Ucluet and Tofino and sometimes all the way around Vancouver Island. So the whale trouble again is a very simple idea to build awareness about the southern resident orcas throughout their range let people know where they live who they are that they're endangered and we called it the we didn't call it the orca trail we called it the whale trail because of course we wanted to connect people not just to orcas but to whatever um and marine animals they might see marine mammals and so that was the so that was the founding. That's a long answer to your question. But I, I'm the founder and director of The Whale Trail. And I'm also the author of a new book about Springer, a middle grade nonfiction book that tells the story. Amazing. Good. We, I love a long answer. I like sometimes people just give me like a short little brief thing. But I'm like, no, I want to know all the details. So that was great. <laughs> um, amazing. So how far so tell us more about the whale trail. Where does it extend to? Are, are there places in Monterey with you know, like, is, does the whale trail come down this far? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we added three signs. And so the whale trail started, uh, first of all, it's, it's a collaboration. We started with a team of partners, um, who many who had worked together to get Springer home. So NOAA Fisheries, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, the Seattle Aquarium, the Whale Museum, an environmental group called People for Puget Sound. We were, I, I, they had all told me all these agencies and groups were interested in something like a whale trail. None of them had the bandwidth to do that project on their own, but they all said they would support me. If I would lead it, they would be part of a team. So I hit the, we hit the ground running with a really wonderful team. Um, and 
we the first thing we did was we um, identified you know came up came up with our mission and goals and then we identified 16 sites in Washington State to be the inaugural whale trail and we yeah. called everybody all all these sites and to be on the whale trail it has to be a place you can see orcas or other marine mammals sometime during the year mm. we want to set people's expectations appropriately you know what what they what they might see and when they might see it yeah. And so um, we started with 16 sites in Washington and then a few, um, really it just grew year quite organically, year after year after year. Um, our second year, a group um, from the Strait of, who live along the Olympic Peninsula, at the Olympic Peninsula along the Strait of Juan de Fuca. The amazing thing about this project, Erica, is a lot of people have had an idea for something like a whale trail. Mm. There are places in California where there are sculptures from people who wanted to do a whale trail, mostly thinking about the gray whale range. Mm. So I, someone here, a, a good friend of ours, Uko Gorder, an illustrator and the um, head of the American Cetacean Society chapter here in Seattle, he had done a map of showing mm. what a whale trail in Washington would look like. I didn't even know it was something he was thinking about. Mm. So like all the pieces were in place it just needed someone to kind of stitch it together and that turned out to be me <laughs> so um we had 16 sites in washington state then we added um our first signs uh what we do is we all our sites are on our website so mm -hmm. that's how you and our website is designed to let you plan your travels or learn more about the animals that you want to see but it's the hub it's our information hub and then Many of our sites have interpretive panels and the interpretive panels are customized to let you know what animals you can see there and when. And we work, it's deeply collaborative. We work closely with our site partners and hosts. So um, we added our first signs in 2010. In 2013, we added our first sign on the Pacific coast at Kalaylock Lodge in the Olympic Peninsula. And that led in uh, 2014, we um, had a partnership with the National Marine Sanctuaries West Coast Region, headquartered right where you are, to add our first signs in California. And we, uh, it was part of something called the Orca Tour. We traveled with, uh, we produced a, a lecture series with Eric Hoyt, who wrote the book Orca the Well Called Killer. Mm -hmm. And we added our first signs in California were at Point Reyes mm -hmm. in Santa Cruz at the Lighthouse and at Point Lobos. So right in your, um, right in your backyard are, were our first signs in California. And um, since then, we've added a few more uh, in your direct area. There's a whale trail sign at Pacific Grove. And um, uh, uh, I, sorry, it's, there's another state park that we added one in 2018. We added uh, a, a huge number of sites along the Northern California coast in 2018 with a grant from the National Marine Sanctuaries Foundation. So we are now throughout Southern Resident Range and beyond it. The other exciting thing was in 2015, we started a partnership with the BC Cetacean Sighting Network to us. They, when they were ready to promote shore-based whale watching and they wanted to, everyone wants to know where can I see the whales? So we had kind of created the solution we had a, a model and a method that worked and how to engage with commu local communities to create, to identify and, and mark these sites. So the whale trail extended into Canada starting in 2015. And now 
um, there too. We are throughout and beyond Southern Resident Orca Range all the way up to Haida Gwaii. Um, so it's a simple but powerful way to reach people. Um, you know, I think one of the great things about the whale trail is it supports intentional travel. If you want to plan a trip to go see humpbacks, you can use our website to figure out where and when, you know, you're going to the central coast of California, say, where should you go watch whales? Um, or you're going to the north end of Vancouver Island, same thing. However, we also reach a lot of people who aren't intentionally planning to see or learn about whales, but they come across our sites, come across our signs, and they spend a few minutes reading them. And that's kind of a golden moment where their awareness changes about what they're looking at. You know, people see a flat ocean or they see it, they don't, it, it's not immediately apparent how much life is being sustained in the waters that they're looking at, especially the whales. Right. So. Yeah. yeah. No, that's definitely important. And I think so many people don't know like what's in their backyard. Um, we have a lot of people, cause obviously I work on a whale watch boat here. We have a lot of like, you know, tourists and things like that that come in. And oftentimes it's like the locals that I talk to that like have no idea that this is like a hot spot for humpback whales, you know? Um, so mm -hmm. that's really important. Yeah. And like, you know, the more people that are connected to their environment, the better, you know, that's how we get people to care. Um, and, you know, obviously like land-based whale watching is probably some of the best whale watching that you could do. So that's always, you know, great. It's, it has no impact on the animals. So, you know, it's best. Yeah. And that's, um, gosh, in Monterey Bay, I mean, I'm amazed at how deep that submarine canyon is that so you can see humpbacks. I was with some friends um, in Aptos a couple of years ago and there were, hump you know, there are humpbacks right in front of us. It's kind of astonishing that the humpback resurgence and how close they are. Yeah. And land-based whale watching, I want to say something because people, I think, mistakenly think that we are against boat-based whale watching. Right. That is not true. I've had some of the best experiences of my life aboard whale watching boats. Um, but wildlife viewing has to be sustainable for the species that are being watched. That is the golden rule. Yes. <laughs> and that is what was not happening here in Puget Sound in the Salish Sea with the Southern resident orcas. Right. So I'm sure we'll talk about that, but that is, I wanted to, to make that clear because I, th I think sometimes people think we are somehow polarized or encouraging this anti-boat-based whale watching. Not at all. What we yeah. are for is responsible wildlife viewing. Yes. I completely agree with you on that. Obviously, you know, I work in the whale watching industry, so I'm not like anti whale watch, but people do get confused because I've been very vocal about my opinions on watching the Southern residents up in Washington and how I just feel like we shouldn't just leave them alone at this point. You know, um, it's a very hot topic for a lot of people. And unfortunately, it can be a little bit polarizing. You know, I think that we should all still be able to work together regardless. So, if you know, if there's somebody who works in the industry who believes that we should watch the Southern residents and like, I personally don't, I still think we should be able to come together and focus on like dam removal and things like that. But unfortunately there are not, not everybody thinks that way and they, they do let it get in the way and it can be a little polarizing sometimes. Yeah, you know, Erica, this is something I learned really throughout my software career, managing projects and teams, but also with Springer, that when you have a clear and shared goal you put your efforts to achieve that goal. And our goal is to recover the Southern resident orcas. That is what binds 
this what brings us together is that none of us want to see these whales go extinct. There are many roles to play, but you can't, what we can't do is ignore the science and ignore the facts about yeah. the impacts of noise on these animals, which is getting more and more clear. So when, you know, in getting Springer home, our goal was to get that whale home by a certain time. And to do that required all different kinds of people working together. We, the community, nonprofits had one perspective and one set of tools we brought to the table, but so did our Springer's vet was someone who worked with SeaWorld for 20 years. Uh, if you had, if I, if any of us had said, we're not going to work with anyone from SeaWorld, Springer would not be home. Right. You know, you must be able to find common ground and treat each other with respect. No yes. matter what, yes. that is the other thing that has really corroded our, the, the orca world is a microcosm of what's going on in the world in general, I think. Yeah. And when people let human egos get in the way of all good work <laughs> or fears, I guess I should say, the, the biggest thing I learned from Springer was to lead with your faith, not with your fear. And what I mean is, give other people a chance, listen, yeah. Yeah. listen, you know, and let other people have, a, you don't know where the wisdom is going to come from. Yes. <laughs> and for the seven residents, we all have a role to play. I know that a hundred percent, you've got a role to play. We all, you know, every one of us is picking up a piece that calls to us and we have to be able to talk to each other on a bedrock of core human respect. Yes. And that is square one. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree with you on that. You know, like we're never going to see eye to eye on any issue ever, no matter how similar we are. Like there's just no way we're going to get all of the humans to be on one page. So we have to figure out how to come together and be respectful with people that we don't disagree with um, or that we don't agree with. And I totally agree with you. I think the, the Oracle world is just like under a microscope what's going on in, you know, the world altogether. So I definitely agree with you on that one. Um, it's, you know, it's hard. I think you, you touched on an ego. We've talked a lot about that on this podcast and other episodes and stuff. And I think that honestly, ego is the core issue of a lot of our environmental problems and that our environmental problems are just symptoms of ego things because, you know, why do we need to, to take over big groups of, or big areas of land? And, you know, why do we need to have billionaires, et cetera? I, I could go on, but you get the gist of what I'm saying. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you on that. So what have been some of your biggest takeaways? Obviously it sounds like aside from just understanding the environmental issues, the human element has been something super important to you as well. Right. Well, I mean, I've, I've, I've had a really wonderful experience. So let me talk a little bit about the Southern residents specifically and the, the role of noise, the role yes. that noise plays. Yes. Because that's, I've become, um, I was a member of Governor Inslee's task force on killer whale recovery in 2018. And in that role, I championed the issue of noise as something we needed to address. Mm -hmm. And it is an undercovered part of this story. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows we need to bring back salmon throughout the orcas range. That is a square one thing, you know, that, but orcas are acoustic animals, as you know, they rely on echolocation to find their food. 
And it, at some point, the science shows that if they can't hear to find their food, it doesn't matter how many salmon are out there. At some point, the, imp the impact of having salmon abundance mm -hmm. is outweighed by the noise and disturbance from vessels. So, and the science on that is evolving in, in astonishing ways. In 2021, Marla Holt from NOAA Fisheries published a paper, and I'd really invite you to have her on your show because she can speak really knowledgeably about this part of the story. Female Southern resident orcas stop foraging when boats approach closer than 400 yards. Mm. 400 yards, which is the Be Well Wise guidelines are only called for 200 yards. Washington state law only calls for 300 yards. So even vessels that want to do the right, even people who want to do the right thing are potentially interrupting female foraging. But it's that fact that just came to light in 2021 is kind of more almost heartbreaking if you think of the pressure the whales have been under for the last decade absolutely from commercial and recreational whale watchers you yeah. know so the task force seriously look at all three issues noise toxin accumulations and salmon abundance or increasing salmon increasing the salmon that is available to the whales that is the goal not just increasing the number of salmon, but the increasing the salmon that are available to them. I heard, um, I learned that in a quiet sea, it's estimated an orca can echolocate on a salmon 650 yards away. Wow. That's six and a half football fields, a yeah. single salmon. And they know that they're, they know that it's a Chinook salmon. Yes. So any noise that we put in between that 650 yard range shrinks their acoustic world. You know, if there is a wall of boats that is at 200 yards around them, all of a sudden they can only find the salmon that's within that 200 yard limit. And now we know that females actively stop foraging. I mean, that was an astonishing find. They're in the middle of a hunt that Marla Holt studied, you know, they satellite tagged the orc or they tagged the orcas and found that they, um, they could be in the middle of a chase with the salmon in their sights and stop foraging because mm -hmm. the boats were, boats were approaching. So this, of all the threats facing the orcas, it seemed clear to me that, and on many of us, of course, we need to bring back salmon throughout the range, throughout the orcas range, and we need to re reduce toxins. We need to stop putting, uh, you know, putting things into the water that are working their way through the food chain, bioaccumulating in the orcas. But the thing we can do, those are generational changes that are going to take a lot of time. Right. The thing we can do right now that's going to have an impact on whether these whales survive is give them the best chance to find the food that's out there. Right. And that's why noise, reducing noise seemed like such a no brainer. Just turn down the volume and yeah. let them have a chance to, as you know, to echolocate, to find their food and also to hear each other. Their yeah. communication calls are masked. So we, we affect, you know, we, they are, they have, 
they're the target of our affections and our curiosity and they have suffered for it yeah. because everybody wants their five minutes with an orca not understanding what that's costing the orcas right and we so anyway that was the solution that i championed on the governor's task force was to um manage the impacts of commercial whale watching because you know the here in the salish sea that industry exploded over the last decade during the same time the southern residents were declining it's exploded i mean going from 10 boats and 20 boats and 30 boats to 54 companies in the Salish Sea operating 130 boats. So that when you have a single group of orcas, you could have up to 75 boats around them yeah. between the commercial vessels and the recreational boat boats that they attract. Yeah. So, and they stayed with the whales all 12 hours a day, nine in the morning yeah. till 10 30 at night and most companies did four three or four trips a day with multiple vessels so imagine the churn that's creating around the orcas as these boats are coming and going and coming and going so it became this i think for the whales you know we talk a lot about the impact of large vessels which matter too but at least ferries are on predictable routes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, this, so the, essentially the whales were corralled by this floating float, this, by a floating flotilla that stayed yeah. with them every daylight hour. Yeah. It had just gotten to, you're probably, I don't know, have you ever, did you ever come up here? Did you ever experience that? Yeah. So I actually, I did a season, um, up there and ultimately decided that I, I could not work there. Cause when I, so I came up to visit in March of 2019. And that's when I first learned about the Southern residents. Uh, the first worker that I saw was Stanley and his family group. Um, and I was told that there were so many great protections up there and that it was ethical and sustainable. And so being like newly out of college, having just done an internship where I was learning about the impacts of ecotourism and studying the dolphins in Sarasota, I was like, this is great. Then I can see how it can be done like sustainably and ethically. And then I got there and I was like, what? Like, it was a lot. It was, I, I you know, I'm glad that I had that experience because I learned a lot from it, but I definitely don't foresee myself ever working up on a whale watch boat in Washington ever again. I just, unless um, a lot of things change, I just, I'm personally not comfortable with it. And that's why I work in Monterey Bay where we have, I think eight companies and the boat or the, one of the companies that has the most boats is three. And rarely are those three boats ever out. Like we will maybe see like the most is like five boats near a whale, but on average it's one to two boats near a whale. And that's what I'm comfortable with, obviously from a distance. So that's why I watch whales here and work here, but I cannot work in Washington. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, and it seemed to us that it was just a, of course, we, the best way to affect change is if people are internally persuaded of something, right? So we keep reaching out to and working with operators, hoping that they will also be persuaded by the science that encourages them to voluntarily stay that far away, you know, stay far away from the Southern residents to give them a chance to right. 
find their food and 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 uh, you know whale watching companies and you you clue it and tofino voluntarily stopped watching the southern residents back in 2018 so we're still hopeful um but the, but anyway as part of the task force the two two landmark record um two big recommendations from the task force the task force recommended to stop all whale watching of the southern residents mm -hmm. recreational boaters and um commercial boaters for at least a period of three to five years mm. the task force also recommended supported my recommendation for a licensing program for commercial whale watching mm -hmm. that would allow the state to manage access to the southern residents the same way it manages other wildlife species you know when we overfish something we stop fishing it yeah and as simple as that like we have over harvested these animals for ecotourism we need to stop and just give them a chance to recover. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm happy to say that that did become law um, yeah. in Washington state. The vessel impacts law became, was passed in 2019. And then the Department of Fish and Wildlife spent about a year and a half, a very intense public process making rules. And we have changed things. Today, the commercial whale, there is a licensing program for commercial whale watchers with special rules to protect the Southern residents. And those rules are, there is no whale watching of the Southern residents for nine months of the year. October through June, all commercial vessels must stay a thousand yards away. Yeah. That is the distance recommended by the Washington Academy of Science as a precautionary distance to give the whales the space they really need. Yeah. So, and there is limited whale watching still allowed um, July through September, but only two hours a day, uh, two two-hour sessions a day. So ten in the ten till noon and two till four, something like that. And mm -hmm. only three boats within a one thousand yard square um, area. Oh, I know, mm -hmm. So a big. It's not the moratorium that the whales really needed. We think that all whale watching of the southern residents should be suspended by all boaters, but. This was a huge change, a sea change. Yeah. And um, so now, so I'm, I'm really grateful. And the public really, really supported these measures. And I, I hope the industry embraces them too, you know, and, and it would voluntarily, even though they can watch the whales um, July through September, our hope is that they would choose not to. Yeah. Um, because the, the, you know, it, it, well, anyway, so but we so we have made a big change here. You know, we have yeah. when the southern residents come home now, it is quieter. Yeah, they, you know, from this one one sector, which is um, you know whale watching, it is better. We still have to have recreate the rules for recreational boaters catch up to mm -hmm. where the commercial whale watching distances are. We actually a group of us. Um, Seattle Aquarium, Washington Environmental Council, Friends of the San Juans and NRDC started a voluntary pledge campaign where mm -hmm. voters can pledge to say a thousand yards away from the Southern residents. It's called Give Them Space because on this, we are ahead of where the laws are. Mm -hmm. Be Well Wise guidelines haven't caught up. Federal guidelines are way out of whack and even the state law is not enough. Now we know we've got the science that says all yeah. boats need to be 400 yards away. Happily in Canada, Canada has suspended whale watching of the Southern residents since 2019. 
all boaters, commercial and recreational, have to stay 400 meters away from all orcas. Commercial whale watchers can have a special permit, a special agreement to get closer to bigs or transient orcas. Mm -hmm. But um, that, so, uh, you know, the, Canada has quieted their half of the seas um, mm -hmm. for quite a while. And now the US is finally catching up. We still have work to do, but the important thing is we're making progress. We are kind of turning the big wheel to protect the Southern, to create the Salish Sea to be a place that can sustain the orcas again. Yes. They've been coming back less and less and less. And to the point that they, it, they appear to be abandoning their course yeah. on habitat. Absolutely. And people want to, yeah, and people want to say the, the, the truth, the truthiness about this is that they're not coming back because there isn't enough salmon. They might also have stopped coming back because they can't, they can't hear. They couldn't hear when they came home. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely both. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, we don't know everything, but we have enough science to have a really good idea of what's going on. And I think it's both. And I, you know, I feel the frustration um, of, you know, when people want to be like, it's just the salmon, it's not this issue. And I really, really, that argument really bothers me just because I, I feel like it's a waste of energy because we could focus that energy on the salmon and not being like, Hey, we're not the problem. Like, but also we need to take accountability for our actions. Like as humans, we do things that are terrible for the environment every single day. Like we just do, that's just the reality of the situation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously we can't fix every problem overnight, but also like when there is a very clear solution. And also it's not like these businesses are, are going to suffer. The bigs are thriving. They can still watch the bigs and, and that can be, you know, more sustainable and fine, but like, there's a balance too of like, you know, there, there's a very fine line between having it be an impactful experience where you connect people to wildlife and where it becomes exploitive. Um, and right now I, I, you know, I feel that it's exploitive. I've been very vocal about this and I, you know, obviously I'm sure you receive a lot of the same sort of feedback that I do. That's, you know, not always the kindest feedback, um, about this, but, you know, it just is the reality of the situation and the Southern residents are in such bad shape that we don't have the luxury to watch them from a boat right now, in my opinion. But, you know, I think you're right. I think that a lot of it is the noise because also I know Alexandria Morton, she has done a lot with the Northern residents. And when COVID happened, there were Northern resident families that came back to that bay that she studied after decades of not being there and she attributed that to noise so who's to say it's not the same for the southern residents exactly and that's you know my vision erica is that i think it's a shared vision. and all of us are understanding the, the the devastating impact of noise on all marine creatures but especially the southern residents and i i what i like to imagine is that when they come back into the salish sea ideally there would be a 1000 yard zone around them where there's no, no boats, no mm -hmm. noise. We, and that we also, you know, uh, other sources of noise are from large vessels like tankers and containers and um, container ships and, excuse me, ferries. And through the ECHO program in Canada and the a Quiet Sound program here in Seattle, we are taking steps that those sectors are really invested in changing what they're doing to protect the orcas. So we're developing electric ferries here in Washington state. Amazing. We are, 
Yeah, and the ECHO program has done really wonderful work bringing commercial shippers into to be part of the solution. So they will voluntarily slow down when they know Southern residents or whales are in the area to avoid ship strikes and to avoid you know, and to um, reduce the levels of disturbance. So I, I am really hopeful that we are going to do this and yeah. that we can imagine, I just see, imagine the big volume knobs for the Sailor Sea, you know, turning it down, turning it down. And of course, along the Olympic coast or along the whole West coast, there are other noises a factor out there too. It's just yeah. the Sailor Sea is an amplifier. I think the construction of this closed water system exacerbates the impacts of noise and disturbance when they're here. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely tough. I, I think, though, that we can all come together and, you know, we can do things for the Southern residents. And two, also, while we're talking about the things that we can do, I also want to remind people that that public comment period is open right now for removing the lower Snake River dams, which is another big thing that we can do. And I'll be sure to put the link in this um, episode description. But now, I'm going to say something will be controversial. Okay. But I... Um, I don't think taking down the Snake River dams is the be all end all for the Southern residents. I you do know? agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Not the and end all for all, but it's something, you know? Right. Well, here's what I learned on the task force. We had quite a few seminar. We had learning sessions about the Snake River dams. That system produces a certain number of salmon each year in the spring. I don't have the number at my fingertips, but it's, I don't know, like hundred million salmon or whatever it is that comes out, predictably comes out of that system. If yes. those dams came down tomorrow, that number would drop because of the silt, the sedimentation that's built up behind the dams, the river will get scoured and yeah. there would be a short term loss in productivity. Yeah. Short term meaning four to five years. Mm -hmm. So the actual impact of taking down the dams would be in the short term, there would be fewer salmon available to the Southern residents. Interesting. So think about that. What these whales cannot afford any loss of salmon anywhere in their range. Mm. We can't make anything worse. So even if it's the right thing to do for the long term, I don't think it's the right time to do this for the Southern residents because they cannot, we, we are, the one thing we have to do is not introduce any new stressors to them, which would be the loss of salmon. That was one of the things that persuaded me. This is, this is not the right, you know, the, this is the other important thing that often gets lost in the discussion about the dams is Southern residents rely on salmon that comes from five rivers, five key river systems, the Klamath River, mm -hmm. the Sacramento River. These are hugely important to them. Um, and the Snake Columbia River system, the Fraser River system, and the whole of Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one, it's all of these that right. we need to re repair and bring back. And I, I, would love to see the same focus and energy that's been brought to this dam system brought to the other rivers that provide food that's just as important to the For southern sure. residents so 
not taking anything away from it, but it has been shocking to see how that issue has totally, most people believe that to, take, to save the Southern residents, we need to take down the Snake River dams. That is simply not true. It is one piece of a big puzzle. Yeah, it is definitely, I, I do think a lot of people think it is like the silver bullet and there's no silver bullet with the Southern resident issue. It's a, it's a combination of a lot of things. I completely agree with you on that. Um, yeah. Definitely need to go in and, you know, that's kind of the thing is like, we learn new things all the time and you're, you know, presenting me with new information that I had yet to be aware of. And I've definitely, you know, been of the belief that the lower Snake River dams where it was like all positive. And now I'm seeing that there, you know, is a potentially negative side to it too, which I wasn't aware of, but that's the thing is we learn new stuff all the time. Um, yeah, that's well. it. Keep your, you know, that's, that's how we humans, that's what's best about us is keeping an open mind. We can learn. Yeah. So we can learn, we can absorb information and we can change what we do based on what we learn. Mm -hmm. And that is, that is what's going to, that so gives me hope for us and for the orcas, you know, so, so I think, I think that's an important um, trait. The other thing that's really interesting is I have witnessed that people, everybody wants to save the Southern residents, but there's a tremendous social pressure to tell their story in a certain way. And if you, telling, bringing the facts to the table sometimes means challenging that whole social ecosystem mm -hmm. of nonprofit groups and researchers and media who are all, who have created a truthiness about this Southern resident story. Mm -hmm. And that has been both, that has, I think, been part of my role is kind of bringing the facts about noise to the table. I'm not alone in this. Right. In the beginning, I kind of was, but there are a lot more people who, yeah. and the science keeps backing it up. So I think that's, I do have ultimate confidence, no matter what we do, when we keep bringing the truth to the table, the truth will out and yeah. people who are listening will hear it. So that's what we need to do. And even if it challenges, even especially if it challenges the dominant story about this. Yes, absolutely. I completely agree with you. I mean, we have to be open to being wrong like because there's so many times throughout history that we've thought that we've been making the right choice for conservation or something and we find out that we're not like i mean people used to literally shoot orcas because they were eating too much salmon like that and they thought that that was a good idea like genuinely they believe that that was a good idea and so we have to be open to things especially science because science is going to be the best way like obviously nothing's perfect, but that is the most sound way to find out the real truth of something. And I really do admire that you were one of the people to, you know, kind of forge the path of that. And I completely understand your feeling of feeling alone and in, in trying to bring up the issues of noise because people don't want to hear it and they don't want to be challenged and they want to feel like what they're doing is right. And ultimately we have to like be able to really figure out what is truly going to impact them and not just what's going to make us feel good, you know? So, um, right. Or that, or that, you know, to stay the seven residents sometimes means changing what we do. Yeah. And people, you know, that photo op that people want with the five, you know, wanting their five minutes with the whales, people will bend in pretzels trying to make that. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, and they'll say things like, well, the whales come over to us. Well, that's the whales are, curious and engaging and 
will come over to us. But th this is the thing where we can manage what we do. And what yeah. is in the, here is my North Star. This was the North Star for Springer and is the North Star for all my work with the whales is what's in the whale's best interest. Right. Absolutely. Always put that first. Yes. Yeah. I, I think that that is, yeah. I mean, my friend Gloria, who's been on this podcast many times, she said something to me once because I was having a tough time posting an episode about whale watching regulations because I received so much pushback and she's like, use the whales as your compass. And I've always like held that phrase kind of near and dear to my heart because she's right. Like at the end of the day, we have to use Springer and these other whales as our kind of guiding light because it's, it's, you know, about them at the end of the day. Um, we do have to wrap up here. Do you have any final thoughts? You've definitely offered us a lot of insight and I know I've learned some things and now I need to go look into more things about the dams, you know, um, but is there anything else you care to share with our listeners here? Um, I, I just want to say, um, you know, my friend Tim Reagan is the former um, director of the executive director of the Marine Mammal Commission, and he became a touchstone for me. Um, do, do your homework, you know, find mm -hmm. out, follow the facts, do the research, find out, especially if it's not, you know, do that. And Tim has a quote that I just love with regard to the Southern residents. He says that, he said that um, we have reason to be optimistic, but yeah. we have no reason to be complacent. Yes, that. And I think that is exactly where I, I feel like I do. I think um, one thing that many of us, we, I feel this urgency with Springer, we, we knew we had to get her up to Johnstone Strait by July, you know, by with by a certain time. And that urge having a deadline made things happen. And that is my fear with the Southern residents is that we get used to things the way they are. And we can't do that. You know, this they need our they need big help now. So um, I would encourage everybody listening, you know, if you're a boater in or around the Salish Sea, commit to staying 1000 yards away from them if you're a boater and commit to watching them from shore and join with us on the whale trail in helping build that connection to and um, appreciation for marine mammals along this coast. How lucky are we? Um, so we, we would love, um, you know, we've, uh, we've still got big gaps along the whale trail. We need to add more sites. So we're always looking for volunteers, um, of course, support the support the boat. We're a very grassroots organization, so we'd love any support. This is a little idea that took off and now is stretching this whole coast. And I um, I welcome any help, and especially from um, I'm looking to the next generation for leadership and to keep this going long beyond me. So um, I welcome that. Awesome. Well, I will be sure to link. Um your organization and all of your resources below for people to go check it out and support in any way that they can. And thank you so much for being here. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank you, Erica. Stay in touch. Yes, will do.